0: Hello. 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 Is this Doctor Schaffner?
1: Um, I don't know who's calling. Uh,
0: uh Doctor Chapman, PhD, um, Doctor. <laughs> I can Professor Doctor. Professor, yes. Benjamin Chapman, B.S.M.S. Ph.D. I think is what you mean. <laughs> B, yeah, B, It's actually B.Sc. M.Sc. Um, oh. In Canada, we, uh, oh. we, uh, we. You know, we're known for adding extra letters. Use usually. I, <laughs> I, I
1: would love to have a BSc, MSc, DSc.
0: DSc. Oh, doctor, no DSC. Doctor
1: no, of no. Uh, Doctor of Science something. Yeah, the people people from that went to MIT don't have a PhD. They have a DSc. I'm so jealous. Of
0: course they do. Um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I had I was um, uh, chatting with someone yesterday who was – uh, dealing with a PhD student who, uh, as she put it, does not get the philosophy side of the doctorate of philosophy and can't figure out how to do something. And I thought that was very, um, it, it was pretty cool. <laughs> it was so, like a so, weird way to say it. So give,
1: give this This sounds fascinating. Give me more yeah. details.
0: Um. So So this individual was um, not figuring out how to do an ELISA. And I don't, I say that not really knowing how to do an Eliza, I know what it is somewhat. But um, so, so she uh, drew a picture of the uh, uh, Eliza, and and in a frustrating way said, "This one is not getting the philosophy of what they're supposed to do, and it is a doctrine of philosophy." <laughs> so I, I, I thought that was good. I, I thought that was a, 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 a interesting way to to describe it. It's not just about. Um, uh, figuring out the technical side of things it's it's about being able to problem solve and where you fit in
1: oh yeah it's it's to, it's totally about being able to problem solve right it's as i explain uh, it seems like I, feel, I maybe it's a getting old thing but the uh, older get I off get, my
0: lawn get a-
1: <laughs> yeah oh, god don't even get me started i i can i don't at least oh, don't even get me started we're going to build a fence we're going to build a fence so i don't kill somebody <laughs> Uh, that's the. Yeah.
0: We'll come back oh. to this because it. <laughs> I like. I am oh, like So
1: talk. angry. Like, I, how how hard Ben? How hard is it? Literally, how hard is it to walk an extra twenty feet so that you don't walk across someone's lawn? I mean, it's not that hard.
0: It, it's. Um. I don't know. I mean, I guess it. It could be hard for some people. Um. Oh, hey,
1: and anybody, <laughs> anybody that's coming down the sidewalk with a walker.
0: Cut across. They Go have ahead. a free
1: pass. They yeah. have a free pass to come across with the walker. But if you're able-bodied,
0: no. How do you – our listeners don't know that you're literally talking about your lawn. I am um, literally talking, talking j- about yet. my literal lawn. So so how – in the case that you just brought up, would you – if you put up a fence, will you just have two gates so people could cut through if they have a walker? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> there will
1: there will be the yes the plan is that there will be gates um my plan is to have the gates not be terribly obvious as gates, uh, but the, the we do need to have a way to get into the area where the lawn is that's not being killed by people walking on it so that the the lawn can be cut. Um, the advantage of that too is that that will be a little area where our dog likes to roam so we can put him there and then not worry about him you know straying. I mean, right now he can go in the backyard, but that's uh, a long, a longer walk because uh, the backyard is fenced but we have to go down the back steps and out to the backyard which is you know probably that's eh, probably i don't know 50 feet or so which is fine on a nice day but on a cold winter morning when the dog has to go out it's it, he doesn't want to go out and we don't want to take him out but this would be just a few quick steps down the front steps or the back steps and then psh, right into the into the yard so
0: well so but it's it's going to be one gate right so it's not yep. a, a not a cut through for, for those with walkers. So well, someone no, does but,
1: have so a here, No, no, but here's the thing. So oh, we want nice. a gate on – like it's the – it's hard to describe, but it's – there's going to be a gate on either side. So imagine imagine my imagine my lawn is a rectangle, and basically we're talking about fencing the upper right-hand quadrant of the rectangle, right, where the house is centered in the rectangle. So oh, – and so there will be gates on both sides, right? Because we want to be able to come into that area of the property for both either the sides. front door or the side door, right? So there will be there will be two gates, um, and they'll be electrified.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and those in your neighborhood who um, need to use that cut through will have we'll, the we'll
1: give a them key. a passcode or yeah. a key or something, yeah.
0: Or exactly. um, maybe RFID, just uh, sure. inject something into their into under their, their skins, yeah, sure. under
1: their skin. sure. But the point I was trying to make before you got me (laughs) sidetracked with being old is – Saying stuff, like I find myself saying the same stuff over and over again, and I've just decided I'm good with that. And, and if, if you know, if P, and because I've had a lot of graduate, I'm very old, Ben. I've had cool. a lot of graduate students, and uh, I find that uh, they don't all know each other, you know, because some of them were there 10 <laughs> years before. And so when I start talking about such and such a certain, they look at me like, I don't know who you're talking about. But so I'm just good with repeating myself. And one of the things that I find myself to get come back to the final point here we're trying to make, one of the things I find myself repeating. Is that getting getting you a P and actually I was talking about this with Hannah, um, who's actually coming down to your university she um is. to get her to get her PhD, a doctor of philosophy. And I said, um, getting a PhD is shows that you have learned how to learn. You've learned how to teach yourself something. So if that's what this colleague of yours yes. meant by by yeah. that, it's like absolutely you if that you, is exactly it. Yeah. So, and, and yeah, so you need to, you need to be able to learn how to learn, learn to teach yourself something, learn how to think about something, learn how to come up with your own ideas. It's not, it's not about what you know, it's about what you can do with what you know, what you can synthesize, making connections. I think I've talked in the past on the show about, um, uh, when Joe Frank, when I was a <clears throat> undergrad student myself and Joe Frank was, a a uh, still a professor at Georgia, but he was a young assistant professor at Georgia. And he talked about this, they had this wonderful class on fermented foods. And he talked about science is about making connections, right? So it's like, I give my students the literature. I send them papers to read, not because I want them to read that paper, but I want them to understand that paper and then be able to make connections between what that paper is saying and the work that they're doing, right? It's like, I, cause I'm, I i can not do all that thinking for them, right? I can point them in the right direction. I can say, here, there dragons this is a thing you need to think about um but you have to actually do the work and make the connections and even at at level of a master student obviously i expect less of less of them in terms of that um it's still at that point it's more like going through the motions and kind of learning the steps of how to fail in the laboratory right but but ultimately the better master students begin to make those connections sooner
0: Uh, this is a good place for us to start because yesterday i had um I met with a, a student who's going to be, or she, uh, she's just finishing her undergrad in the next couple of weeks and she's going to start with my group and start a, a master's degree. And, um, I, I there's a, a couple of projects that I'm going to give her this summer to, to get her started and bring her on as a, um, you know, as a temporary biweekly individual. And then she'll start her degree and start her her uh, graduate research, um, assistantship in, in the fall. And, um, I had a really, like, philosophical talk with her about exactly that. That I don't. These two projects that I'm going to give her this summer, I don't expect them. In you know, in the first two weeks, that she's going to know. First of all, know what what the final output is going to look like, and and also get to that point where where she has a like the, where she has a final product that is flawless i mean that's the whole that's the whole point is is i could i have you know, i have a couple of staff members who i could give it to and we could bang it out in a couple of weeks and it'd be done but but the idea of being at an academic institution and, and having students that that you mentor and advise is i want her to learn how to do that and she'll fail and, i mean ultimately in some some aspect there'll be something that goes wrong or something um that, that she'll miss and and that's the the opportunity to show how to, uh, how to learn those skills that, I mean, I've, I've been in this academic world now. I'm not as, I'm not nearly as old as you are because people I'm still fine with people on my lawn. Um, but I'm not, um, Oh, just wait then. Just wait. I will. I know it's coming. Um, but you know, I've, I've been in this world as a graduate student, um, And and, uh you know for I guess nine years or something and then uh which seems really long when you say it or eight years whatever it was, um and then as a um uh as a faculty member for for five, I'm like literally I'm just getting that. (laughs) <laughs> that that piece, like for and and I think that there's so you know we we've talked a little bit about um, the tenure process and the evaluation and and going you know that I went through that uh, last year and we're now at that sort of final step where I expect to get a letter that says hey everything is great and you know you keep going um, th- th- those first five years I I I don't know if it's like I just did, I wanted to make sure everything went well so I I was. I had there was more pressure that I would put on those students to do it right as opposed to learn. And now it's now I've realized well that's not really what I'm here to do is just churn stuff out that's all perfect. It's that's part of it, but the process to get there, I also need to build capacity within the food safety workforce. And I got to be able to show how, you know these these students or not show but help them learn learn those skills because it, that's uh, you know that, that that's the that's what it's all about. So, but it's like you know that I wouldn't have had the conversation I had yesterday with this student three years ago. Like, so maybe maybe I should have, but you know, it, it took me a while to get to that point.
1: No, and and I think you first of all, every student is different, right? So, what works with one student may not work with another. But also, you're different and you're constantly changing. And I think one of the things that we maybe this is part of the reason why we get into academia is we're pretty tightly wound and we care about getting the details right. Like there's a certain kind of person that gets drawn to graduate school and there's a certain kind of person that gets drawn to a PhD and there's a certain kind of person that gets drawn into academia. And very often that is a person who is a detail-oriented or maybe not detail-oriented, but is obsessive and uh, you know in, in a positive way about stuff. And part of Being a good academic or being a successful academic I think is knowing – being a successful anything is if you're going to manage people is you have to be able to delegate, right? You have to be able to say, look, I am going to be okay – with you doing this. And I'm here to provide advice, but gosh, you know, I can't be in the laboratory doing your experiments for you and doing this other students (laughs) experiments for them and and this and that and the other. Right. So, and then we, we all have, and this is again, something, you know, I think we all struggle with some of us more than others um, about letting go. And when is, when is a manuscript good enough? Or when is the thesis good enough to send to the committee or when, you know, uh, how much work do I need to do? to get to work work on this grant proposal, um, you know, and then, and being okay with doing, you know, whatever is appropriate given the circumstances. Yeah. I mean, you, it takes a lot of work to put together a good grant proposal without a doubt. Um, but at some point you just have to kind of be okay with whatever it's going to be. And same thing for manuscripts too. You know, you have to be like, okay, well this is as good as I've made it and I'm going to submit it and we'll see what happens.
0: Yeah. And it, and that's the process, right? Like I guess that's the, the the part that i've I've recognized more more recently is that the uncomfortableness with that not having a um, it's not that it's perfect. It's just you know it, it, not you know not doing it the exact way that I would have done it <laughs> is okay. Like letting go of that is is okay.
1: Um, right, right. Like in other words, your job is to see if it's good enough, not to see if it was done the way you would have done it.
0: Right? Exactly. Yes. It, yep. Yeah. Yep. But it took. But it takes time to, to realize that, or at least it took oh, time for me. I mean, oh, yeah. other people know that no. sort of right away. But it was yeah. It and and then all of a sudden, that like kind of changes how you do things. Like it's it, it's more about and um, giving the students opportunities to. Uh, to develop those skills. And then ultimately, like you said, right at the start of this discussion, fail in the lab, fail in the field. I mean, cause that, cause that, that happens. And we, we're only going to strengthen that skill set by having some level of failure.
1: <laughs> and For, this is, this, yeah. this is by far, this is something I repeat very often to my students. And it's by far the biggest lesson that new master students have to learn. You know, they come to us, Ben getting A's and B's and, and A's and B's, you know, in classes. And that means you, you've, you succeed 80% of the time or you succeed 90% of the time. And then you turn them loose in the laboratory and nothing works. Mm-hmm. And they're like, Oh my God, I've made the wrong decision. I'm not good. I'm not cut out for this. And my job is just to say, no, no, that's okay. you're it, This is the way research works. You do stuff and it doesn't work or the culture doesn't grow or the plates get contaminated or, you know, you did a step wrong. I mean, there was one one experiment when we were doing – um, uh, cross contamination with frozen hamburgers where we didn 't get any cross contamination because apparently the the burgers were inoculated with sterile culture I mean so you know stuff like that happens all the time in science and and that 's okay and you know now it 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 's okay when you first start right. at some
0: point that better stop happening right.
1: well, <laughs> but, yeah. but it 's okay that it happens because that 's research
0: and uh, the the lesson is it 's okay. It, but you better learn why it happened, like, right, it's, right. and and what, what do you do with that information? Not as, not just on the next time you do that exact task, but, but how does that affect your your future tasks in an a adjacent type um, you know t- type study or activity right um, g-
1: g- yeah g- generically what 's the problem not not yeah. what 's the specific problem this time, but what did you do this time that if you did it differently in the future for a related task would would result in
0: not having that problem right yeah exactly exactly it's uh it it's good it, you know I, I don't i don 't often kind of get all um caught up in um the university machine and we have, it's funny, we have something in the notes about that a little bit later Um, on sort of peer review and we'll get, we'll get to that. But I I don't often get, get like um, sort of raw, raw, raw about that kind of stuff. But, but I, I did um, go to a, uh, you know, an all faculty meeting of our college with our chancellor back in the fall or late summer last year where I, I didn't, you know, I don't. I didn't take much away from it, other than hey, this is cool. We're all here. There's a bunch of people that I that I don't see all the time, and people are interested. in asking questions, and that is cool. But out of everything that the, the chancellor said, I, I remember like nothing, other than one thing. When a question came up about um, the cost that we have for students, and it's it's cheaper in our system to have postdocs than it is to have graduate students. Um, from a in-state tuition, out-of-state tuition. I mean, all the particulars of, the, of that conversation don't really matter other than um, the, the question that the, um, the, the faculty member asked was, it, it, I, money is tight and I can do more if I have a bunch of postdocs instead of graduate students. Is that really what you want, want me to be doing? And the chancellor's answer was, no, we're a university. We train students and it, like out of that 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 kind of has sat with me more as i as i think about it like and i don't know i'm sure you talked about other very important things but 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 it was like no this is what you do you you're not here to to um the students really really matter i guess
1: well, and that's, and that's a great answer, and this, I don't know if this is something that we've talked about on the podcast, but it certainly is something that I've talked about um, with a variety of colleagues on a regular basis, and the same thing is true at Rutgers. It is more cost-effective by far to have a postdoc than to have a graduate student. But the key question that I would ask, the follow-up question I would ask for the chancellor is like, that's great. We agree. Now, how do we change the system? Because right, right they, now, yeah. financially – this is the smart move financially. And you can tell me all day long that our mission is educating graduate students, but if the system is set up, that it's more effective for me to get to hire postdocs, rah-rah, go, go yeah. state, hire graduate students. By the way, I'm going to hire postdocs because I'm, I'm a practical a- person at the end of the day, right? Exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, uh, that was kind of the, the direction that the discussion went was our our system's not – Matching the philosophy So right. either the system changes Or the philosophy changes Or you'd stay, they both stay the same And, and I'm going to make my individual choice Based on, as you said, practicality And, and what, what, what I need to get done With the amount of funds that I have
1: Right, it's like the discussion about teaching. It's like, oh, teaching is really important to us. Teaching is really important to us. Oh, but by the way, if you're a great researcher um and you're a crappy teacher, we're going to give you tenure and uh, by the way, if you're a great teacher and you're a lousy researcher, we are probably not going to get tenure, but oh, but teaching is it's, so important to us. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it you know, to bring it back to food safety, it's like talking about having a food safety culture and food safety is very important to us. Well, that's fine. Put some resources against it now,
0: right? Right yeah match it up yeah what's the yeah. organizational uh, behavior look like yeah. um, well and uh, I mean coming back to something that we that you tweeted about earlier this week um you know we have the safest food supply in the world uh <laughs> we we have the best we we have the best system in the world <laughs> oh yes and people it's just that- like I am I'm, I'm tuned into
1: that now I blame you and Doug for that I'm so tuned into that and I'll just call bullshit on it every time so
0: <laughs> yeah it's it's crazy and it just keeps popping up people love to say it. Oh man. Well hey, look at the, look at us. We even um well, here's a pat on our back. We we started right into content. We didn't go anywhere. People someone one of my colleagues said to me today, I, I wish you guys would just note when you get to the good stuff. And I said to her It's all good stuff. It's all good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's all this is the good stuff. We're at the good yeah. stuff. Yeah. What what time did it start? Zero dash zero zero dash zero zero. Exactly. You know what we ought to talk
1: about, Ben, is we ought to talk about comic books and and comicsology and and the fact that Amazon bought
0: comicsology. Well, you know um, what you know what's funny? <laughs> what you just started there. I thought we had a sponsor. I thought, you, know, you know what we ought to talk about, Ben? <laughs> That's right, Ben. This week we're sponsored
1: by Amazon.
0: Yeah, I was like, whoa. We just got and how sponsor? they're
1: slowly destroying the
0: world. Oh well until i mean destroying the world until they have their drones <laughs> <laughs> then they'll be slicing heads off of people as they deliver uh, things
1: i you know what i need i need a drone that will clean my gutter i, I was up i was up <laughs> up in my ladder cleaning my gutters and it, i there's a there's a problem that i just and it's two floors up and i don't know and i was reading a cdc article about the number of people that are killed on ladders every year. Every time I'm up there, I'm like, oh, I don't want to die.
0: Like, that's not me. Uh, I need a
1: drone. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so we should uh, – well, so let the, let the record show that for, for one minute and 30 seconds starting at about minute 20, we got off topic. But the rest of it is pure golden content.
0: Exactly. Hey, so I have a call recorder working today.
1: <laughs> what did you do
0: differently? I, um, I reinstalled it. But it's, you know, what's weird is I don't, I don't actually see it now, but I I definitely hit record at the start of the conversation. So it's probably going somewhere.
1: Well, you know what I, I, um, do is there's a setting in call recorder just to have it start recording automatically. Yeah.
0: I didn't know that. Oh, there it is. I found it. Cool. Um, so that's nice. Maybe we're sponsored by call recorder today. Sure. You know, Don, what I, (laughs) I don't even know what to say. Um, Hey, so before we get like really deep into, into follow up and stuff, I want to tell mm-hmm. you that I have been watching a new show on okay. on HBO called Silicon Valley. Oh yes i i started uh, I started
1: in so the the very cleverly um, HBO put uh, episode one of Silicon Valley out uh, on YouTube for free. Right. And I started, I started watching cause I don't have HBO and, st- and still don't have HBO um, and probably never will have HBO. Um, but I started watching, I uh, started watching it and it looked good. Um, again, it's one of those things where I'm, Pretty sure this is going to be a show that Kristen's not going to like. I have yet to show it to her, but um, <laughs> from what I from what I've seen of, of uh, episode one, it looks pretty good, and and I've heard the nerds say good things about it. So
0: it, it was really good. Danny's into it. Um, we watched the first episode, and so I you know watched the first one, and it's like, do you want to watch more of this? Because I like it. I'll watch it on my own. She's like, no, let's watch the rest of them. So we watched um, three episodes last night, and it's uh, it, it's good. It's it's uh, it, it's different. From some of the other HBO comedies, like it's it's a little more, I don't know, lighthearted or something. Um, it's not it's not like uh, it doesn't have the same draw as um, uh, or same community as like Girls or um, Entourage or Veep or Kirby Enthusiasm. It's it, it's a little it's it's more like. Um, did you ever watch Mind of a Married Man? No, back, back in the day no. it was good. It was it's similar, kind of like I don't know. There's a, there's there's just a little more emotion in there. Some some tender, some tenderness. Mm-hmm. I liked it. It's good. So anyway, that's that's what I'm that that's what I'm watching. But I also have something I want to tell you that I'm listening to. And again, I'm not. We're not sponsored by these folks. But um, so I I've been in like a music rut for a while. And I don't know. Do you go through this when it comes to like? There's nothing new that you like for a while, for eight months. Everything I'll, everything that is popular or that's available that that I'm trying to tap into, I hate. And I I ranted last year to you about the National as being yes. one, of, one of those bands who I also who I just couldn't get into. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, I, the first album that I've like obsessed over for a m- couple of months. Uh, is an album um, called uh, uh, I don't even know, know what it's called, but it's Gore Downey from the Tragically Hip, who Michelle Daniluk will know, um, and so will um, uh, Linda Harris, who downloads this pod- podcast but doesn't listen to it.
1: Oh, uh, I I, recon- I can reconfirm that she is still not listening. Uh, oh, good. When nice I saw one. her uh, uh, a while ago, so
0: good. Well, Gore Downey in a uh, an Ontario band called the Sadies have created a band called The Conquering Sun and it's this like, I don't know, country alt-country uh rootsy kind of stuff. So I will I'm gonna share this with you. I think you'll enjoy it. Okay. I like I like I Yeah, I am you
1: know I I mostly don't listen to music anymore. I listen to podcasts um and have barely enough time to do that and then of course when i'm on an airplane uh, is mostly the time when i'm listening to music because i want to you know sort of drown out if i'm trying to do work and i want to drown out the the annoying people around me and and as I, i think we've shared before on the podcast um on my phone, I have a very limited selection of music. It's music I bought on my phone and then is physically residing on my phone. I suppose I can listen to uh, music on you know, in iTunes on my laptop, and there's a lot more there. So, so basically, it's one – the most recent Mark Knopfler album. It's an old Traffic album. It's a Rolling Stones, Sticky Fingers, and then uh, that's about it.
0: <laughs> so I've been listening to a lot of those three albums over and over again. Well, I'm going to give you The Conquering Sun. And oh, you can listen to that. Oh, but you yeah. know what? I did.
1: Um, I did uh, sponsor a Kickstarter, um, which was a new uh, Lee Scratch Perry album. Oh, uh, I like. You... I
0: like Lee Scratch Perry.
1: Yeah. So, so new, a Kickstarter to help him make a new album, which is amazing. I mean, so if you like reggae music, this is this is this is awesome. So,
0: oh, that's cool. Um, yeah. Well, oh, I was going to tell you something. Ah, never mind. I'll save it for after dark. has pass. It has, it has. Uh, cool. So, uh, so yeah. Oh, hey. So, should we do? Should we do some follow up before we jump into uh, outbreak flashback? I mean, that's the way we like to do it, right?
1: Sure. <laughs> Let's do that.
0: Okay. So, follow up um, number one is uh, anybody who would uh would like to help us out on show notes we we are uh as we mentioned a couple episodes ago um we were so fortunate to have uh andreas help us for a while and, and then his um he uh said uh, goodbye to us because his uh, situation changed a little bit. Um, yeah, some, some lame excuse about like, he,
1: like having kids and yeah. not having a job and doing consulting. I don't know. It just, it was, it was just nonsense. It's yeah, it's nonsense. like, he's,
0: exactly, <laughs> he's, he's totally, he's totally left us, uh, <laughs> uh, for whatever. No. <laughs>
1: for a bad reason. No, <laughs> I, 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 thanks to, thanks to Andreas for all those yeoman, yeoman, uh, years of service. Um, seems like years, any multi, multiple episodes, more, Way more episodes with Andreas than without. So. Oh,
0: yeah. like he, he goes back to like episode 12 or something.
1: That was back when we were good.
0: Yeah, back in the day. Back back at our first album. Um, so if anybody wants to, to join, uh, you'll hear the full unedited show and in, in all of its um, uneditedness. Uh, fame, glory, t-shirts. Um, as always, the standing um, uh, offer. For a drink at any IAFP reception, uh, not multiple drinks if it's a, if it's a reception with an open bar, right? Right, multiple drinks. Um, uh, and, and, and Don, I'm not going to. I think a, a, a way back we said at an IAFP reception of your choice. I'm going to open that up to say any, all of them. All you can uh the the cheese and wine one anything that's that's out there we'll buy you as many free drinks as you want
1: yeah yeah <laughs> Exactly. Um, and, and it's not, it's not a terribly burdensome job. What you have to do is listen to the episode. We will send you a list of links and then you basically need to work those links into a brief narrative and you can see other examples of show notes from other episodes and, and follow that, that format and that style. We will edit what you write. So don't worry that, you know, you're, if you make a mistake or you do something wrong, you know, we'll, we'll fix it. We'll make it so that we're, we're happy with it. Um, and it basically gets you early access to the show. It gets you fame and glory. It gets you free drinks. Um, and it's not, it's not that hard. And it would be, again, it's the perfect job, um, for a graduate student again, who's, who's wanting to, it's a, you know what, Ben, it's a great resume builder.
0: It is. It's it's an incredible resume builder. (laughs) Um, and, uh, and yeah, and, and I mean, the other, the other thing is we, we, um, podcast listeners by the time they listen to this they'll probably notice that there's been this large gap in between a couple episodes of posting and it's because of my slackerness uh cuz I'm responsible for the show notes and I haven't finished them yet so it moves it makes things move faster uh for the listeners for the for if if someone's uh, altruistic this is a perfect job for them even if they're not altruistic
1: yeah well if you, even if you do it for the free drinks you know it's 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 giving back to the community
0: it is it is um, so that's that's follow up uh, uh, number one. Um, we we had a uh, a couple of emails uh, that came to us uh, this week um, and or a couple of weeks ago, I guess. Uh, and uh, our friend John Kimball uh, from the Dried Fruits Association. Uh, of California, who uh, we mentioned in a previous podcast, uh, he had some questions about uh, um, moisture in uh, moisture content of tortillas. Um, he emailed us and said, "By the way, since I'm emailing you, I have a question you may or may not want to discuss on the podcast." I read an article a few years ago indicating that research shows drinking wine with a meal can help prevent some types of foodborne illness. I didn't read the research, just an article. And we all know, well, media can often misrepresent the results of research. Do you have an opinion on the matter? Um, And and John said, you have my permission to mention the question and my name if you so choose. So we just did that. and uh he has uh a little bit of information here on the dried fruit um, dried fruit association of california originally incorporated uh in february uh 1908 we expanded well beyond the early period and now offer services to ensure food safety so um so john's uh question um yeah so you and I both uh, recalled uh, some research uh, on this, and uh, there was a, a paper that came out in um, 2000 uh, on, uh, in this, this, sorry, 2002 in epidemiology on the protective effect of alcoholic beverages on the occurrence of a salmonella foodborne um, outbreak, and it was uh, associated with uh, Salmonella, Ohio, illnesses in spain uh that happened in 2000 and um the case control study showed that um the individuals who went to or who who ate the food uh that was associated with this with this outbreak um Although the same food was very strong uh, connection to the meal, um, those who, who drank uh, wine with it were uh, had a less level less likely to uh, uh, report symptoms of salmonella. So so there's, a, so so there's some science there's some epidemiology behind this this concept. Now, does that mean that it's a good idea to uh, to drink wine as your only uh, protective <laughs> measure? <laughs> <laughs> probably not <laughs> Pro- probably not,
1: and and we should say too, um people that that drank uh let's see so um if I'm reading the abstract correctly um if you so there were three three levels of alcohol consumption, there was none. There was one to 40 grams and then there was greater than 40 grams. And one to 40 grams was not protective, right? Right. Uh, but greater than 40 grams was. So 40 grams is about 40 milliliters of wine. And I don't know, what's that in, what's that in uh, American, Ben? <laughs> How many glasses of wine is that? Uh, uh,
0: I don't know. Like, that's a, uh, that's, a, like, that's three, like three glasses.
1: Yeah. So, so if you're going to drink wine with your meal and you want to get the food safety benefits, drink a bunch of wine. Don't just, don't just drink one wine. This is bad advice. Don't, don't follow this advice. Um, Right. Right.
0: (laughs) But it's kind of, I mean, it it is, it, it, it does show there are lots of factors, right? It's, it, it goes back to, to the whole idea of, um, uh, mean infectious dose and exposure. It's, it's not just about, I mean three or four episodes ago we talked about um an extension agent who emailed me that she left pizza out overnight. Am I going to get sick from this like well that 's probably not a good idea blah blah blah, and then responded the next day saying well i didn 't get sick like but yeah there's lots of factors maybe she had three glasses of wine i don't know <laughs> i don't know
1: well and you know and we've done we've done research and actually um <clears throat> Uh, my colleague Carl Batt at Cornell has done this with his undergraduate class. I think we've talked about this before on the podcast. He teaches an undergrad micro class, and he's looking, always looking for ways to get the students engaged. And he says, so, so let's do an experiment. Um, one of the things that uh, often happens at these college parties, I've been told um, – is they're drinking beer and they're eating pizza. And so what would happen if you left the beer and the pizza out overnight? And then, you know, what would happen to the bacterial content? And turns out, um, beer actually grows bacteria a lot better than pizza. And if you think about it, it makes sense, right? Beer has more nutrients in it. Pizza, fairly low water activity, not especially conducive to growing bacteria. So, and again, our, our work that we've done with the Rutgers University dining halls bears this out. Pizza is, and we've talked about this before on the podcast. Pizza is often a food that is supposed to be held warm that is typically it's very difficult to keep it uh, greater than 140 degrees Fahrenheit so it is often not at 140 it's often at 120 or maybe even 100 and we test that pizza and invariably it comes back very clean very low bacterial counts so um, for for a bunch of reasons probably not not risky
0: right and,
1: including the fact that people may drink wine or beer with it, <laughs> right? <laughs> it, <laughs> to bring to bring it back around,
0: right? Right, exactly. Um, bef- before we leave this uh, this topic of, uh, that John brought up, I do like uh, I pulled up the paper, um, and the last line in the paper is as such. These findings do not mean that alcoholic beverages should be recommended as a protective factor against infectious foodborne diseases. The universal recommendations for good practices among food handlers and food, waste, food safety are still the best way to prevent such outbreaks.
1: Yes, absolutely. <laughs> this, is not a, this is not a solution. This is a, this is a complicating, confounding factor. It is, not, it is not a solution to food safety.
0: I like it. I, I don't know if I would have written that in there if I wrote this paper. Would you? Would you have added that? Um I, I I don't know maybe
1: yeah it's a good, it's good I mean I That's I good, appreciate yeah. that they they don't want to they don't, don't want to come across as as be this being the the solution
0: Right, and then that someone down the road might point at it and say, hey, you guys said this, and we'll extrapolate that. They they can point to the text in the paper that says it very clearly we're not suggesting this. We're just noting that something different happened.
1: I well, like, because oregano uh, – or sorry, pizza prevents norovirus, right? Yes. <laughs> because of oregano or whatever, exactly. whatever that
0: story was, right? So yeah. it's
1: it's good that they saw the way this could have gone in the media reporting on this, and they, they took care of it. So
0: Yeah. Um also, they, the sa- this same group actually has done some other stuff and said um, they saw similar protection uh, with the um, Salmonella enteritidis outbreak and also um, other studies about uh, hepatitis A virus and Helicobacter pylori infection. So it's kind of so it's uh, inter- interesting stuff. So thanks to John for uh, for bringing that up. I don't think we've talked about that on the podcast or at least not in in this much detail. And it's uh, it's always great to get. Um, questions like this, because it gives us stuff to to talk about right and
1: and I mean and, and clearly it 's not it 's not just a single paper right this is a, right. this is an observation that has been borne out through repeated observations, and so it's it 's likely true or at least there is some truth to it
0: right exactly um, hey, so Don, I want to tell you that I think we 're under a tornado watch <laughs> right now and oh may, awesome so you may hear rain right now in the background i don't know how how loud it is but is the rain I, is pounding against my window
1: Oh, I know I'm hearing noise, but I'm not sure if it's ambient noise from my background or yours. It sounds like uh, vehicles going by, which could ver- and it's in my headphones, but it could very well be from my microphone. So, oh, okay,
0: well there you go. Um,
1: um, and, well, but it- so if if there's suddenly a loud siren and then the sound of a roof coming off or something, I guess we'll just reschedule.
0: <laughs> yeah, we'll just we'll just do it another time. <laughs> okay. It, um, we it's it's crazy we've had like tornadoes or tornado watches and warnings like four days out of the last five it's it's a it's a it's a fun time in north carolina um hey speaking of not being in north carolina see what i did there um i a little piece of follow-up um you and i have, have well documented our uh discussions around raw milk uh in the last little while and uh I mentioned on a couple of previous podcasts that I had been invited to a uh, a, a conference, a one day conference at the University of Guelph, my alma mater, uh, on raw milk policy, and uh, had been asked to talk about um, uh, risk communication with regards to raw milk and what the literature says and what any recommendations that I might have, which was was a little bit um, varied. Um, but I, I so I just want to tell you about the. This this meeting because it was pretty it was kind of interesting there. I I didn't really know what to expect. And and I had shared with you and and Doug um, prior to. The, this meeting that someone on our Barf Blog Facebook page um, posted or sent me a message saying that uh, Michael Schmidt, who we've mentioned and, and David Gumpert uh, mentioned when we had him on, um, who's a Canadian raw milk—I think he described himself as a raw milk activist or definitely a raw milk proponent—he um, had posted a few things on his Facebook page about um, about me and my um, er- erroneously what my what he thought my perceptions were around raw milk. Um, so I kind of took that all in stride and said, oh, well, this could be interesting. I hope I don't get, you know, stabbed or something. While I'm there, I didn't really know exactly what what to expect. Um, but I, I think pleasantly for, for all involved, it, and, and it was like our experience with David, where this issue is so emotional, dogmatic, polarized, that there are often um, – you know, groups that are, that are assuming what others think or, or what others are trying to do. And, but once you get people in a room together, um, that some of that kind of evaporates because either, you know, it's, it's harder to be, um, uh, combative face to face, or you know, you have someone who can explain what their, what their thoughts are. So, so I hadn't, um, there, there was a dinner the night before this conference, uh, with all of the speakers and there were some, some great speakers, uh, Lydia Medeiros, who I'm, I'm i think, you know, Don, do you know Lydia? I, I know Lydia. Yep. Yeah. So Lydia from, uh, form, she retired recently from Ohio state, the Ohio state university. Um, she's been doing some work on mental models. Uh, she, she was there. Um, uh, oh gosh, I just like spaced out. Um, Kathy from the University of Vermont. Do you know Kathy <laughs> Donnelly? Donnelly, thank you. Uh, that was it. Yeah, Kathy Donnelly from the University of Vermont uh, talked about uh, raw milk cheeses. Um, Jeff Farber uh, was there. Michael Schmidt, uh, as I mentioned, um, and, and a few others. And oh, oh and Nadine, uh, I, I jazz. Oh, E G S. He has.
1: Yeah, I know who you mean, Nadine.
0: Nadine, Nadine I. Nadine, yeah. yeah, yep. Nadine yep. I. Um, so she she did a did a great job uh, as well, and so it it was. I mean, I think the goal of this conference was all right. Let's get let's get everybody together and see what what the science is around the risk, and and if and if it was to become. A product because it's currently illegal to uh, to sell it in all of Canada. If it was to become legal, if, care, if cow shares were were a way to um, to allow this, what what would that look like, and and what how would you translate the risk? And and so so there were some really good um, good questions. I I don't know. I'm you know the I guess the cynical part of me is I hope something comes out of it. I mean we had this great discussion and then we all sent our powerpoints in, but I mean really it's like. There should be some, you know, a white paper, and that becomes something that that people can use for, um, uh, for policy or, or whatever. And I don't know what's going to happen uh, out of it, but the I guess the the biggest thing was um, I I gave my talk and and it was very similar to what I have said on the past on the podcast um, about me being uh, somewhat of a libertarian hippie, and uh, I I just want. You know, I want people to have choice and drink and and do whatever really whatever they want to do, um, as long as there's a, a, a some way to meaning meaningfully um, communicate risk so they can make a, a decision, and and that there. are – there may be benefits, and, and you and I have talked about this. Is that's not really our area. I don't know much about um, the proposed benefits from a nutritional standpoint or protection from allergens or whatever um, the the benefits are. I do know a lot about the risks, and and, and that that need, needs to be presented in a way that's meaningful so someone can make a choice. And and Michael Schmidt, the guy that that I thought was was getting ready to to take me out behind behind his car um, beforehand, um, and I was ready with my like hockey uh fight mantra i thought was going to happen uh, which which really would have been i would have tried to look for another teammate to get him <laughs> and you, know, you needed me. like an, an an enforcer guy yeah yeah i needed yeah. uh D- dave simenko was the guy who used to uh protect wayne gretzky um uh, there you go yeah i needed a simenko uh anyway i he he said during his talk he said Ben Chapman and pointed to me and I was sitting at the back of the room. It's like, you uh, surprised me. You're funny. <laughs> I was like, oh, great. Thank you. Um, but, but he, he kind of said, like, I think we're all in the same uh, mindset here that we want to have a meaningful dialogue. And, and there, there are a lot of things that that others presented that I didn't agree with, that I thought were a little bit um, outside of you know what I, how I would take how, – how I would like the science to go on this. Um, but there was a lot of really good stuff, and, and I, I was texting with you and and Doug a little bit uh, back and forth, and, and I spoke with Nadine afterwards. Um, she, uh, she she would be a very good spokesperson for the raw milk movement to move things forward. She she has a uh, I think a good understanding of the literature, um, and. Uh, and, and but but isn't uh not you know she's not a microbiologist and and that um in our conversation, I think after we talked to david um is really that that's what i've taken away from our our discussion here in the last six or seven episodes is the the folks that want to drink raw milk need someone who can give the food microbiologist folks some data to show how they can make it safer. And, and 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 it's got to be someone who's got who's got some credibility in the in the science world, or can build credibility by sharing their their studies um, in, in this area. And I didn't I didn't get the sense. I mean, I, that that's still that's that's a need in 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 what they're doing in Canada. It wasn't it wasn't apparent um, there. But um, but I I mean, really, really thought it was nice to to have this open conversation. Um, but I hope something comes out of it. So it was good. Yeah, good and,
1: and in, re- in related news, we've been talking on the podcast how I have been procrastinating uh, Freedom of Information Act request on raw milk. Um, and I finally got to that um, this week and uh, got a just an absolutely delightful phone call from a a lawyer with the Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture who handles their Freedom of Information Act requests. And he was just like – it just was like i mean you know nothing against lawyers there i'm sure there are lots of really nice lawyers out there but he was just like we really want to work with you on this and i just want to let you know that the rules say we need to get back to you within 5 days and i will get back to you in writing uh within the 5 days but it's going to take us a long time to pull this together, and I'm really sorry, but I think that the records are probably paper; they're not electronic. And by the way, you're referencing our guidelines, but um, you know, I want to send you a copy of the regulations and let's set up a conference call where you can chat with me and the other folks that are going to have to actually get the records. And just like, just super, super nice. So the the bad news is, is that I'm leaving town um, this after this week and won't be back because I'll be at the IAFP Europe meeting as well as the the UK affiliate meeting um, and then traveling to Boston for ASM and and then off to a board meeting. But I think I will be able to talk to him from Des Moines on the morning. uh, I'll be in Des Moines the night before and I'll be able to talk um, uh, that morning uh, before going into the board meeting that afternoon about exactly like sort of fine-tuning my request so that they give me the records that I want. And I just was like... I've never done a Freedom of Information Act request before, but it's – I expected it to be much more like – bureaucratic oh. and slow and they're just going to photocopy a bunch of stuff and send it to me and send me back a you know a, a right. piece of paper that I have to check was this correct yes or no and then I have to mail that in with a stamp and a check for 25 cents or you know i mean it just and it wasn't that at all and it just was really delightful so so and again so, so to your point hopefully the data we're going to get from this request will maybe begin the process of being able to figure out Okay, are there indicating factors? are there predictors of you know what's going on in Pennsylvania raw milk um, and I don't know you know the answer is I don't know, but at least we' we've gotten started on the whole process
0: yeah and and I, I mean, kudos to you for 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 doing that because well d- don't don't thank me
1: yet because well, i, I procra- procrastinated for weeks on what was probably the easiest part of the whole process. <laughs> actually getting the data and making some sense out of it is going to be a lot more difficult but i 've got a bunch of undergrads that i 'm hiring this summer i 'm hoping that I can put one of them to work on this or a team of them to work if we get the data in time you know if we get it by the time the summer starts um, you know to kind of uh, basically code that data and extract some value from it
0: well- And but but I guess just like being able to commit some time to 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 do some of this to to say okay this is going to be important because I I mean I think that's that 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 becomes the the interest here and I think we're um where a lot of this discussion has gone from this like purely emotional it's it's bad it's good. it take it, I mean it just take, it takes data to do to do it and I appreciate you spending um, at least some of your time to get to that point um, and, and committing some, some of your resources to, uh, to hopefully answer some of this um, stuff because it's it, it, I, I mean the, the, the common thought that I, that I have that, that is uh, that came up um, very strongly in this conversation at Guelph is creating a black market can't be a good thing. Right, like it can't. It, it it's not a. It, people are who who really want it are going to drink it. They're going to get it. And we, the the more we know about what the what the contents and the risks are, the better we can we can build the system. But but I, you know, I, I don't know. So I've I've ranted enough on on that. But I I do appreciate your you you wanting to spend time on that.
1: <laughs> yeah, and we'll see. We'll see how it goes, you know. But okay. it's been a very interesting process so far. So I, I look good. forward to chatting with the folks from Pennsylvania um, uh, later uh,
0: next month. Good, good. And actually, let me let me rephrase. I don't. I guess the data will tell us whether creating a black market is a good thing or a bad thing. If there was anything out there, it just seems like it can't be a good thing.
1: Well, I'm, I'm not sure the data are going to tell us that Ben, because what what this is data on. Yeah on legitimate producers in right. Pennsylvania to do to do the experiment with the black market. I don't know how you would even how you would even do that. You'd have to look, yeah, I don't I don't even know how you begin to solve that problem, you know? Right. But but yeah, I agree with you on an intellectual level. I don't I mean, I don't think creating a black market is good, right? I mean, look at um, you know drug problems in this country, which is a topic that for some reason we've touched on multiple times in the past. Look at look at prohibition a number of years ago in this country. Look at you know, anytime you create a black market, it just it just if if you if there's a market for something that people want and you create a black market, now you lose the ability to regulate it. I mean my philosophy is let's have raw milk, let's regulate the crap out of it. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. And and put warning labels on it and, you know, all of that, right? I mean, same, same with raw, uh, raw cider, right? I mean, we saw that with unpasteurized cider. If you want to sell unpasteurized cider, um, in certain circumstances, you're still able to do that, but you have to put a warning label on it, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Right. Well, so yeah, cool. Thanks. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, so that's all we got in the, well, we do have another thing in follow-up, but it actually made it in our notes. We'll come back to it, but we, you know what we should do now? Outbreak Flashback? You know what time it is? It's Outbreak Flashback time. Do-do-do-do-do-do. Outbreak Flashback. (laughs) So. (laughs) Wait. Before we we jump into Outbreak Flashback. Yeah. What I – I know we asked for someone to help us with show notes. What I really want is for someone to mine the old MP3 files – of all of our <laughs> uh, shows, to, and cut out every intro that I did for the uh, bug trivia, history of IAFP, and uh, outbreak flashback, and just run like fifty of those into one MP3
1: um, file. I
0: want, I want yes. some, I want some nerd to do that. Yes, I think that would be uh, way. Way
1: less useful than having somebody do show notes, but way more fun.
0: <laughs> way more. It'll be amazing, and I, that's something. It's really legacy. It's something I can show my kids and be proud of. <laughs> well, it's something you can show your kids anyway. <laughs> yeah, I I would be proud of it. I, yes, yes. Um, so anyway, yeah. Outbreak flashback
1: yeah so so thanks to uh, Super listener Michelle Daniluk, who uh, was on a roll apparently uh, she suggested three different outbreaks um, and this time this this week, we are going with the Listeria in cabbage coleslaw from Nova Scotia because we have a number of news items later on uh, or number of news items or or papers we're going to talk about later in the podcast that also uh, feature Listeria. So um, it's going to be an all Listeria uh, podcast, or at least uh, a good good part of it. So um, so this article um, was so old that I couldn't access it through the Rutgers University Library. Our, our, so this was an article published in the New England Journal of Medicine um, back in the 80s. And our electronic subscription at Rutgers University only goes back to 1990. Ninety, and so, uh, but fortunately, they are ahead of us uh, down there in South Carolina. Well, um, uh, sorry, well, North Carolina. And, and, sorry, and well, actually,
0: we could be just behind well, you
1: because <laughs> we're. Well, still- you know, and. The Freudian slip, because later on, one of the things that's unrelated to food safety that I want to talk to you about, that I want to ask you about, is whether North Carolina is in the South or not. Right. Because there's been a very there's a very cool uh, blog post on the um, uh, Nate Silver's new blog, uh, Five uh, Thirty Eight blog, um, on which states are in the South. But we we may get to that. We may not. But um, so this wasn't. But speaking of the South, this is an outbreak in the North. Uh, that is the most northerly part of the United States. That is the part that's. In Canada, um, in, uh, in 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 uh, Nova Scotia, and and so this was an article published in again New England Journal of Medicine in the nineteen eighties. It's entitled "Epidemic Listeriosis: Evidence for Transmission by Food." And so um, I'll just read briefly from um, uh, the, the, the early, the, the, I don't think this article has an abstract, but from the beginning of the article, and it says, uh, uh, to examine the risk factors for acquisition of listeriosis in Maritime Canada, we performed two case control studies, public health nursing personnel who were unaware of the hypothesis, who were administered questionnaires. Um, the first study examined uh, medical, residential, occupational, travel, educational history, exposure to other cases or to wild domestic animals, as well as information on gardening or other outdoor activities. Um, And then they obtained a general food history. And so what they discovered was that um, there were 34 cases of perinatal listeriosis and seven cases of adult disease between March 1st and September 1st, 1981, the epidemic period chosen for the case control study. Um, And so this, again, this was an outbreak that occurred very early in the 80s, and I think the article appeared a few years later. Um, And it says that although peak activity occurred in the summer months of 1981, an increase... Increase in listeriosis was evident in the summer of 1980. Crude attack rates for 1981 were four per 100,000, um... Uh, four, uh, so 4 per 100,000, 4 per 100,000, and 1 per 100,000 for Prince Edward Island, Nova Scotia, and New Brunswick. That's in Canada, not in New Jersey, respectively. Um, for the months May, June, and July 1981, the attack rate for perinatal listeriosis at the maternity hospital in Halifax was approximately 1.3%. So um, they went on. They did a review of sources of raw materials. Um, a farmer was identified who raised cabbage and who maintained a flock of sheep two Two sheep from the farmer's flock had died of listeriosis, uh, one in 79, one in 81, and isolates from these ovine cases, that is uh, sheep cases, were not available for serotyping. So basically, essentially what this article is saying is that the possible source of this outbreak, which was you know, very clearly an outbreak, um, was cabbage that was from this field that was fertilized with uh, – uh, sheep manure, and well, I'm not sure it says fertilizer with sheep manure here. Maybe I'm imagining that, but anyway, it was linked to this farm. So, 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 Ben, what else do you have to tell us about this outbreak?
0: Well, um, it was. Uh, did you mention that it was in Canada? <laughs> I think I did. I, think I, I, I heard. Did. You, I heard you say in Canada. Um, <laughs> so, well, I guess the this was. Um, you know has been pointed to obviously by the the title and um and, and throughout my tenure in the world of fresh produce food safety as as up until um the jensen farm outbreak, the only other produce related uh outbreak uh from uh, pointed to listeria or uh, Listeria linked um, outbreak in, in produce and and for all the reasons that, that you and I had talked about um, in, in previous episodes, and I'll just briefly touch on, on them again now. Um, just that that mean infectious dose um, is, is so high for listeria for um, you know to, to cause illness, and the fact that there's likely a lot of listeria in soil um, and on fresh produce. It was you know this this is. Uh, it was very unique, or has been very unique in the in the literature up until that 2011 um, Jensen Farm uh, right. outbreak, and um, also um, around the same time as Jensen, there was a sheep uh, produce-related outbreak um, going on with uh, in the U.S. Um, do you remember that one? No, I um, don't. Okay, let me. I don't. Let me let me pull that up because I'd forgotten about that until we were going through this. Um, yeah, 2011. Um, uh, uh, sorry, maybe I got that wrong. Um, sorry, it wasn't that there was an outbreak. It was that sheep were were um, also looked at uh, potentially in that Jensen Farms outbreak as a source. Um, so I'm, I'm not getting. Oh, but, I- Looked at but not concluded to be Correct. responsible. Correct. Okay. Yeah, based on this, this in the past, and there were sheep around there, but not concluded as uh, as being a responsible uh, source.
1: Right, and and there's an article on the SIDRAP website uh, entitled "Sheep Among Many Suspects in Farm Listeria Probe," and SIDRAP is the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at University of Minnesota. So we we will link to that uh, article. Yes. Which uh, which uh, clarifies uh, Dr. Lawrence Goodridge's role in the outbreak investigation, Dr. Lawrence Goodridge of Canada.
0: Yeah, and you know, as a um, you and I both know, Dr. Lawrence, um, <laughs> he uh, there are two things that I know about Dr. Lawrence that that are uh, m- you know maybe common knowledge, maybe not. One is he has an affinity for um, wearing short pant suits uh, in formal settings. Uh, which I, which I love. Uh, um, and number two, uh, Dr. Lawrence loves apples.
1: <laughs> exactly. He needs to eat more.
0: Yes, yeah, And I, I only know that because I, I've seen multiple pictures in multiple <laughs> settings of him with apples and apple pie, uh, apple juice. So he's an, he's an apple guy.
1: He, he is definitely an apple guy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that Lawrence. Um, so, oh, let me let me do the outro uh, here for... Outbreak oh, flashback. Very nice. Oh, and by the way, I am looking
1: up uh, Dr. Lawrence on uh, Rate My Professors. And uh, he's got all fives, although I'm disappointed to know that no one has scored him for hotness.
0: Ah, oh, no chili peppers? No chili peppers. <laughs> oh, Dr. Lawrence. He's a he's a fetching fellow. He is. He is. He should have a high hotness rating. Seems to me. I agree. I agree. I like that guy. <laughs> uh, well, let's get. So, we, should we get into the show? But should we start the
1: show? It's should almost. It's to, more than an hour in. It's time to start the show, Ben. Yeah, let's
0: start. We got we got some new stuff. Um, so I want uh, I, I want to talk uh, about hepatitis A. All right. And and Tivana. So um, you posted, <laughs> yes. posted something in here. Um, uh, from, from the, earlier this week, actually might've been yesterday, uh, about, um, a worker at a Tivana tea t- store in Indianapolis, um, where, uh, g- uh coincidentally, I guess, uh, the International Association for Food Protection is having its annual, um, uh, meeting. Um, <laughs> uh, it, this, it, this Tavana, uh, tea store, um, uh, uh f- you know, food handler, uh, but it's a, a worker, uh. Um, uh, was diagnosed with hepatitis A, and it was an individual who was preparing the free samples. Um, and so it was at the fashion mall uh, at Keystone in Indianapolis. And the reason why I wanted to talk about this, and I'm glad you put it in there, two things. One, uh, we, uh, I, I wrote something a couple of weeks ago, and, and you had tweeted about it, and we had a little conversation about um, hepatitis A uh, vaccinations and how, uh, cause we had a, uh, a similar uh, situation from a manager at a Papa John's restaurant in Charlotte, um, who also came back from a foreign trip and, um, 20 days later was diagnosed with hepatitis A and had sort of a mess of where everything went, uh, lots of different businesses and school pizza days and, and things like that. And, and I, I mean, um, from a practicality standpoint, um, it, it is difficult. But if I was uh, if I if I was running a, a business and I I knew that there was absolutely nothing I could do, there's going I'm going to have to pay for um, IGG shots, even if no one gets sick. And hopefully, in, in this situation, and also in the Papa John situation, there aren't illnesses, but just the exposure. Um, I, I am. Uh, i am building into my business model um, uh, some uh, funds to give my my food handlers anybody who's touching food uh hep shots and and i know that that's not a not a cheap avenue but but that's uh, the, the the number of incidents that we have it's it's something that i'm putting in there that, and, and i don't know you and i we we may differ on that uh, um, a little bit but that's for it's a public relations thing for me
1: yeah, and you know my my thoughts on hepatitis um, are well. So a cu- couple of reactions. So first of all, um, the uh, the reason why, in part, why I link to this is you know, and you hear all these stupid douchey online, you know, how to get better at doing stuff online. You got to put a picture with your blog post. Well, there's a picture with this blog post, um, and it could easily be the t at my store my mall in freehold i mean it looks i mean because it's it's you know it's a chain right they're all going to look the same but i mean it looks like it's on a corner like mine is you look through the glass with the teapots and you see there's like a mall corridor behind it you know like a mall walkway area mall a mall mall um and um it just looks so much like you know like this could have been freehold right um so so number one there was a resonation there um But in terms of hepatitis A, yeah, you had – I guess Doug had posted something – on bark blog from the duh files should workers be vaccinated against hepatitis A and you know what what that brought to mind is there's an article published and we'll, we'll find it and we'll link to it in, in the show notes I, I didn't find it yet but it's 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 somewhere to be found there was an article in the journal of food protection quite a while ago where they did essentially what was a risk assessment they used they used math and they used statistics to basically calculate the cost effectiveness of hepatitis vaccination for Workers, which I think is a really interesting way to do it, and it's a really interesting question. And the question was is it cost effective? in terms of food safety, to vaccinate restaurant workers against hepatitis A. And what they concluded at the end of that article was, no, it was not cost effective. You will actually spend more vaccinating your workers than you will save in terms of people not being exposed to hepatitis A, et cetera, et cetera. So now, again, you can go in and quibble with their assumptions in the model and all of that, but I thought it was really interesting. And so anytime anybody talks about you know worker vaccination immediately that paper comes to mind and again i haven't checked their conclusions to be to be sure okay but let's say for the sake of discussion that hepatitis a vaccination of workers is not cost effective in terms of public health of restaurant customers. What they discovered, though, I think, and again, I don't have the article in front of me, but my recollection is what they discovered was that it was tremendously cost effective for the workers, right? Like there there, right. there would be a benefit to vaccinating against hepatitis A. And one of the things that I think Doug mentions this in his blog post is that now hep A vaccine is something that's commonly given to kids, right? Like that in, in 2006 here, it says uh, experts began recommending universal hep A vaccine vaccines for kids starting at age one, which means that, you know, basically we are gradually immunizing our population against hep A. And I think, I think I went and got hep A vaccinations uh, back before doing some international travel back in the nineties. So I, but again, I don't know if you need boosters and stuff like that, but, but my retweet of your tweet of Doug's blog post said, it doesn't matter if it's cost effective; it's the right thing to do, right? Exactly. And so that, And that's kind of where I netted out with it is, you know, it may not be cost effective in terms of food safety, but you know, man, it's that—that's probably a benefit that we ought to be giving to the workers that handle our food, right? And again, and that's just that's that's an emotional reaction. That is not a scientifically reasoned reaction. That's just simply an emotion, emotional reaction. And that's what Twitter's all about, right?
0: Right. right.
1: Sharing our outrage.
0: Well, it, yeah, and, and also looking for people that say the same things as we do. Exactly. And, um, yeah, so I'm, as you brought that up, I remember that, that paper is uh, Jacobs et al. from 2000, Cost-Effectiveness of Vaccinating Food Service Workers Against Hepatitis A Infection. And one of the things, this is where, where you're right on, it may not be cost-effective or it's the right thing to do that. The, their calculations were all about, is it, is it cost-effective from a public health standpoint, does it make less illnesses? And, and the answer that they arrived at is, you know, is, is essentially no. Based on the, on the cost, it's it, it is cheaper to manage the the smaller amount of illnesses that we would have in the U.S. food system than it would be to to vaccine to provide vaccinations to everybody. But but it doesn't take into account to the public relations, loss of credibility, trust around the business, having to deal with managing the man, managing the issue, managing the incident. And that's where, where I, 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 you know, the, the, the public health cost is, is one thing, but the impact on the business of having something like this is much, to me, is much larger. And that's where I think that's where the return on investment is.
1: And, and that's not something that they measured, right? I mean, they, they no, only no, no. stuck with stuff that, that could be measured, like, um, you know, the, uh, they uh, looked at, um, uh, oh, sorry, reading here. This is fascinating for listeners. Um, vaccine, they write in the abstract, vaccination would prevent approximately 2,500 symptomatic infections, 93,000 days of illness, and eight deaths. But it would cost um you know a lot to do that, and they concluded- you know using standard standards of cost effectiveness that are that are you know used that it would not be cost effective but again, probably again, I think you and I agree the right thing to do
0: right exactly um yeah, oh, I wanted to mention the t thing one mm-hmm. like another thing, so I don't um i since having kids, I used to be like a big mall rat like for sure. It was – I enjoyed – when, when, we when I was in grad school, the Stone Road Mall in Guelph was very close by the university. Um, I'd just go like walk around, go through the music stores, do whatever. I like I hanging out at the mall, like not unlike um, the movie Mall Mallrats.
1: Um, <laughs> I was just going to say.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, I love that movie. But I love the mall. Um but <laughs> since having kids i don 't go to the mall so much uh-huh. uh but I did go we since
1: a, since since having grown kids i don 't go to the mall that much either. yeah
0: see i and I think once I have grown kids i 'm going to go back to the mall. I like the mall culture, uh-huh. I like walking around. Um, and I guess I, I purchased more things on Amazon uh, and, and online than, than I did before. And we just don't go a whole lot. But it, we took the kids to the mall. Went to a, went and had lunch at Cheesecake Factory, at, uh, which I like uh, on uh, on Sunday this week. And had to wait a little bit, so we walked around the mall and walked by Tivana. And uh, and I I don't um, I don't like tea. And I also really don't like as much as I like the mall. I don't like free samples at the mall. I like free huh. samples at my grocery store, but I huh. don't like it at the that's, mall. I don't want to eat. I don't know. I don't know what they're doing. I don't. And, and so, so it turns out what they're doing is, uh, they might have hepatitis A.
1: <laughs> it's weird because, um, like there's a cheesecake factory at my mall and there's a vanna at my mall wow. and that is, you know, at once, um, delightful and disturbing. I mean, you know, the, the, the mallification of America, right? Um, yeah and we we do like to go to the Cheesecake factory and i I think I've had a free sample at Tivana from time to time, but it's just like i'm not yeah that's not why I mean that's not gonna help me if i if I was going to buy some tea, I wouldn't buy it at Tivana right <laughs> i mean right. I'm just not and i and i do i like tea and i and I am drinking a delightful cup of green tea, um, imported by me from China, um, which we've talked about before and, uh, yeah. And then I've, I've lately, uh, with this recently turned cold weather again, I've been drinking tea at night, but don't want caffeine. So I have a delightful mint tea, but yeah, I would never, I would just go and buy that tea at the grocery store. You know, I, Yeah, that's just me.
0: You know, you know, I like my tea with Jeopardy.
1: <laughs> oh Yes. Yes. <laughs>
0: Oh man um so so yeah good, good stuff. oh, just before we leave that heppe thing i was I did uh, Google this as we were talking, and uh, there has been a lawsuit filed against Papa Johns after that hepatitis A oh gosh, and the website's yelling at me through my uh, headphones. you probably didn't hear it, but there was didn't a car, hear that. yeah, there was a car salesman that shocked me. Um, but yeah, so there's there's been a lawsuit like that. That's the thing is it's it, there are costs, and I don't want to belabor this too much, but but I just had it up here that they, you know a thousand people had to go get hepatitis A vaccines, and probably none of them were exposed. Like I mean, we're we're really the virus probably wasn't even there. Um, but but all that other stuff matters. So and yeah, it's a great right, right thing to do.
1: Yeah, well, and and I think it's well established that 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 Papa John's guy is a jerk. So.
0: Yeah. Oh the, the whatever. Pop, John Papa.
1: John like Papa yeah, John. He's just yeah, a jerk, so that's true. he deserves whatever's coming to him. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> I've been trying to say for all your restaurants. <laughs> Is that-
1: no, 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 we're not. That's <laughs> we're, not, that- <laughs> we're not advocating that, Ben. Let's be very clear. We are not it's advocating just, that.
0: Let's just turn into a different type of podcast. <laughs> um so yeah. Um Do you want to talk sous vide?
1: Oh yeah yeah yes we should I should go off mute and we should definitely talk about sous vide.
0: So so you're uh, you are the sous vide food safety guru. Right.
1: Well, I I don't think so, but
0: um, it's are. nice of you
1: to say that. Um, and I think I think uh, I think Brian Numer from um, uh, uh, Utah State University is really my go-to guy on sous vide stuff. He's certainly done. We've done a little bit of work helping him with some of that that stuff, but but he's really my go-to guy on sous vide. But um, you know, here's the thing, um, Doug, Doug Doug has many skills, and one of his skills is he knows how to wind people up. And he knows he knows how to wind me up for sure, um, and and sometimes I I'm I'm always aware of that, and sometimes I, I I I take the wind up, and he points me in the right direction, and so yeah, there is a um, uh, uh, there was he, he's you know again he he really looks on the internet for all of this stuff and um occasionally if he sees something where he thinks uh I might be able to have a uh, a role to play he he points me toward it and then and then stuff happens so um this is um uh, an article from reviewed.com and we will link to it Uh, And the title of the article is Mellow Takes the Stress Out of Sous-Vide Cooking. And and basically, this is a gadget that you can buy um, that, as near as I can tell, does not exist yet, or it exists, but it's not shipping yet. So um, uh, it's Mellow, set to launch next year, is an app-controlled sous-vide cooker that doesn't require a vacuum sealer and can be pre excuse me, pre-ordered for $400. That's still pricey for novices, but compared to many other sous vide cookers, that's quite a deal. Through a smartphone app, users can remotely set cooking temperatures and update them according to their schedule. The app will also adapt to your preferences and customize recipes to taste. And you know, again, this is, this is, this is great. This is really interesting. Um, uh, but it, <laughs> And of course, I waded in uh, using uh, Discus, which is, which is uh, one of the ways you can comment on websites. And, and I, I kind of got into Discus and you can customize your profile. So I've got a really cool kind of colored, um, uh, salmonella cell there, um, and I wrote you know snarky comment. I wrote the thing that stresses me out about Subi cooking is botulism. How does this device <laughs> help me manage the risk of uh, food poisoning? And and uh, I, so I got a couple of responses. The first response was from somebody who works at the website, um, and uh, from uh, Ben Keo, and that's that's uh, lower down in the comments. But again, you'll go to the page, you'll find it. Uh, and Ben writes, I don't think any of us here at Reviewed, actually, you know, Review dot com, are actually knowledgeable enough on the subject of food safety with respect to sous vide to comment with authority. But here's an interesting exchange on the subject. And then he links uh, me to uh, cooking.stack exchange discussion. And I said, thank you, Ben. That's actually a relatively well-reasoned exchange on the subject. Uh, Thanks for providing it. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of science that goes into it, and you, again, you can, if, if somebody didn't know anything, they could look at that stack exchange thing. Um, and then again, because it's the internet, um, uh, I got a reply from someone who I guess works at Mellow, uh, a guy named uh, Zay. Pinto Ferreira, and uh, he writes, Hey, Don, sorry for taking such a long time to reply. Um, our approach to managing botulism and other pathogens' toxins is to rely on existing science as much as possible when generating temperature profiles for a given food, always being a little paranoid about the food's thermal history. In the end, low-temperature cooking always poses an added risk. If not done carefully, you try to minimize the risk by automating it and doing away with the need for specific knowledge and attention. Does that help? And I said, "Well, that helps some, but uh, you know it still raises the question how How do you know if your temperature probes are calibrated and what happens in the event of a power failure on the device um, and i haven 't had a response back yet from that, but anyway it's you know." Uh, Sous vide is interesting, and, yeah. uh, but it's also problematic. Um, and I think uh, you know, people need – if they're going to be embarking down this road, they need to be careful. I mean I remember back uh, you know, when I started 20-plus years ago, concern about slow cookers and what could people do. I mean slow cookers were a great idea. You put the stew together before you leave for work in the morning. You turn the slow cooker on. You come home and your house smells like delicious beef stew and you have a delicious beef stew waiting for you assuming the slow cooker works. And again, the extension folks around the country did a good job of like, you know, how do you validate that your slow cooker, you know, heats the food up fast enough. And there were some, you know, tests you could do with, with filling it with, uh, you know, tap water and things like that. So there are, um, you know, this, this issue of safe cooking through fancy appliances has been existent as long as there's been slow cookers or for that matter, as long as there's been, um, uh, pressure canners. Right. So this is just another, another gadget that will help people hopefully make uh good food. That's also safe. So I don't know. What do, what do you think about this whole thing?
0: Well, I like, I like the discussion. I was, uh, um, Zay's, Answer. I think he, you know, you mentioned botulism specifically from a. All right, we've got a low, low temperature and vacuum issue. And his concept is. Uh, I think he's probably thinking about other pathogens as, as well. Um, you know, the the concept of um, endpoint temperature being much lower for a lot of the the sous vide. Um, products because it's a, it is, as we've discussed a bunch of times, it's a time temperature thing. And, and that, so uh, the, the validation of the, of the equipment matters, but also whether their instructions are, are followed by the individuals who are using it. And, and I say that because I think from, from what I can gather and with our dishwasher stuff that we kind of uh, went into last year a little bit, and we'll come out with some some more stuff this year. Um, and uh, just following the the world of foodieism, um, individuals who are who are buying um, so at home sous vide machines probably are not. They want to they want to push some limits, right? Like they want to do stuff that and and, and do some experimentation um, themselves. So so you may have this um, this recipe book that says, okay, if you're going to make um, an egg dish and you don't want the egg to set, um, you know, you've got to do it for this amount of time at this specific temperature, or chicken or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But but invariably the the person who's using it is not. Um, there's, as far as I know, not a whole lot of communication that's going to them. And again, I don't have one of these, um, these items and I don't know what the, the messages are, um, within the recipes that they, they might have there. Um, and I, obviously this one we know is not out yet, but for other at-home sous vide, um, things, I mean, sous vide's come up a bunch, as I said, on this North Carolina, um, Uh, Department of Health Variance Committee because it's not within the food code and there's a lot of high-end restaurants that do sous vide and require, I mean, the requirement um, in our state is if you're going to do sous vide, well, you need to apply for a variance and you have to have a HACCP plan that um, has some sort of either evidence or validation behind it that shows what you're doing Um, is going to address the hazards that are likely to occur um, on that, you know, whatever the product is, if it's fish or or chicken or or eggs or whatever. Um, And for the most part, the stuff that that i 've seen and in, in been able to review from a commercial setting is pretty good i mean they've they 've got they're referencing um u s d a appendix uh, i always get this mixed up appendix two appendix b a a, a, nine. a is
1: a a is cooking b is cooling excellent a because cooking 9. because think about it 's logical right you cook first and then you cool and nice. and, and yeah i can 't help you with whether it 's one or two but but it's <laughs> anyway it 's a and yes. b you so just so have to they, just yeah. A is an appendix, you know.
0: Appendix A, appendix A. So, they're, so they're looking there. But I guess the my concern on the at home is, hopefully, the individuals who are using this are tuned into to food and and are, uh, and know it, because they're buying something like this, know how to manage it, but also may push the the limits a little bit um, with it. So that's. I mean, I think you brought, you bring up a really good point on even if they were trying to do it right that what's the, what's the reliability of the equipment. Um, and, uh, and, but, but it's, yeah, it, it's a, to me, it's a, it's a larger question than that too.
1: Well, and, and while we're on the topic of sous vide, um, there was another, uh, post that Doug had pointed me towards, um, which, uh, he, again, he, he links to it on, on barf blog and we'll, we'll link to it here as well. Um, and I'll, again, I'll read briefly from what he wrote and then we can, we can talk about it. Uh, he writes a friend of the blog, Don Schaffner of Rutgers university had some food safety concerns about a recent column broadcast by the state sponsored jazz radio station NPR. I guess that's a little dig on NPR, um, about sous vide or cooking under vacuum at a specific temperature. And again, at least props to the folks um, uh, on the um, uh, review dot com website for having a commenting threaded commenting form that actually works that uses discus, I could go in and leave some comments um I tried a couple of times on this NPR uh, blog to leave comments unsuccessfully. So, um, thanks to Doug for giving me a, a platform to at least do that. And I'm not sure whether it was because I was putting a URL in there, but I, it, it went and it just, it didn't stick. But this, I mean, you know, and the, 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 um, the, the, the mellow product you know, is potentially problematic. This NPR story is just, just, Pissed me off because the jur- the journalist is just saying stuff that's not right, right? Um, dangerous germs live between 40 and 140. No, no. that's not true. No, they don't, they, they, they grow. Some of them grow anyway. And then there's, you know, psychotrophic pathogens that grow below 40 and uh anyway it's just and then she talks about the the pink interior uh of a medium rare burger falls above this range you know that's fine but you know again it's not and she's just confusing she she throws a lot of numbers in there but she's sort of confusing stuff and then she's, and then another thing she says um aim for that window above 140 for safety below 150 for texture well you know let's set aside the discussion of texture but no it's not like if you get above 140 you're safe it's it's you know, uh, it's just, it's just, it's just wrong. It's just, yeah. just wrong, wrong, wrong. Um, and then um, she talks about, uh, you know, they, they give a bunch of recipes, um, you know, a salmon recipe that is, as far as I can tell, results in no pathogen reduction near as I can tell. Um, now they're going to hit the outside with a a, a blowtorch or or with, uh, yeah, a blowtorch <laughs> to kill the pathogens. That's great. Where's, but your, the, any, where's your blowtorch in your kitchen? <laughs> I think you can get those now, Um, but um, uh, for you know, for at least for uh, 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 crisping the top of your creme brulee. But but again, it's not going to help with any pathogens that are internalized. Um, they talk about a, a pork belly product, uh, which is, you know, probably safe, but it's a two day process. They're saying that they're going to cook this, this pork belly for at 144 for two days. Um, I just worry that there's a lot of time for something to go wrong there. And then the worst part is a, a sous vide basic burger, which, yeah. near as I can tell, is just not safe. Right? Um, quite risky. Um, you know, burgers for sure are going to have pathogens on the inside, whether it's salmonella or pathogenic E. coli. And uh, 125 for 1. 1.5 hours, and no reduction. Essentially, no reduction. No significant reduction. Um, and then they do have a uh, sous vide herbed all-purpose chicken breast, um, which is probably safe. So, so good for them for that. But I mean, just come on! I mean, one just, out of four. Just yeah, yeah, one out of four, and just giving out staying stuff that's just not right, and you know, not having a clear way to, for me to provide comments. Obviously, I'm, maybe I'm just stupid, but I mean, other people did figure out how to make comments, but uh, it just yeah, just just
0: annoying. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I also had a big problem with with this, uh, and especially around that. That basic burger. I mean, the fish is a little different. Um, yeah, I don't know. The burger one that just made my head explode a little bit. And I guess mm-hmm. the thought on their part is, oh well, if it's going to take an hour, and, you know, an hour and a half to get to one twenty-five, then or one twenty, then it's going to do something. But as you said, the, um, the data doesn't—it's it, not going to do anything. It'll show that it doesn't do much at all. It doesn't do anything <laughs> from a pathogen standpoint. And I just ah. So,
1: um, yeah. And so, so anyway, just, just, just cause I need to rant here. So you go to leave a comment, you click a button, it says sign in using your NPR account or sign in using your Twitter account, right? So I click to sign in with my Twitter account. It goes, takes me over to Twitter, Twitter, so it can do OAuth authorization. It sends me back. And then it says register for a new NPR account. No, I don't want to register for a new NPR account. I want to sign in with Twitter, like the link you gave, said I could do. Right. So anyway, and then I made an NPR account and then, I don't know, I couldn't log in with my NPR account. And it's just, it's just, I'm just mad. I'm old and I'm mad and just get off
0: my lawn. (laughs) And there's the show title. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: And then I, I try to sign in with my NPR account and it doesn't let me, Uh, it's just annoying. So anyway, thanks to Doug for giving me a platform. And thanks also to Doug for instead of using that photo of me that makes me look like a fat old man, he, he used the very cool um, uh, I study E. coli, no caps, no spaces, salmonella spelled M-A-N, and any bacterial stuff. Um, delightful little image that is my uh, – I think it's my uh, um, image on, on Facebook now, which I which I dearly love.
0: Oh, excellent. Um, so I, got, I have a heart out at three today. Um, so we've got a little. We're an hour and a half into this, but I do want to talk on a couple more things, and especially on whether I live in the south. <laughs> so here's the um, here's here's the thing, Don. Uh, the um, this from uh, as you mentioned earlier from Nate Silver's five thirty eight um, blog, and it was uh, a bunch of uh, it was a survey of people. Um, who live in the South and not live in the South, and on um, what states are in the South. And um, South Carolina is in a uh, sort of this gray, not gray area, but it's not as red as Tennessee and uh, Louisiana, Mississippi, uh, Alabama, and Georgia, where, like, I think that was at least 80% of the respondents say that it's in the South. I definitely think that i live in the south
1: and and i want the record to show we'll roll back the tape so you can check you actually called the state where you live south carolina
0: i did just now
1: <laughs> it's hard so you're talking about the south and you want to talk about north carolina i it's I oh my gosh yeah. yep
0: after i corrected you on cal- correcting yep. on my okay i live in north but, carolina and it's in do. the south
1: but but what the what the what the excellent uh, graphic shows is that North Carolina is not as much as sa- in the South as South Carolina, but also very interestingly, Florida is not as much in the South as Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana,
0: and, and which you, is,
1: is true. If you've ever been to Florida, you know that's true.
0: Exactly. That's the, the this. Um, I, I'm in a, agreement with what it looks like. Uh, what, what it looks like here, I. Other than, I mean, I don't. I think Virginia is in the South, but it's just in the South. Kentucky's in the South. Arkansas is in the South. Texas is not in the South. Florida. Well,
1: it's as much in the South as Virginia, according to this map.
0: I know, and I. Hey,
1: Pennsylvania is in the South. Thank, thank God, New Jersey is not in the South. Right? Like, there's no, there's no. But, but Pennsylvania, Ohio. There's some people that think Pennsylvania and Ohio are in the South.
0: Those are crazy people, Don. Those are, clear, those are you know where, you know where they're from Minnesota. Well, here's the thing: why yeah. I, Oklahoma? We should
1: ask Hannah this. Uh, Oklahoma, Texas is is like in the fifty percent to sixty percent range. It looks like, uh, and Oklahoma is not I, to me. Oklahoma is as much the South as Texas.
0: Yeah, um, I agree with that. Which both of them are not in the South. <laughs> <laughs> um, what I wish they had done. So, I mean, the the survey here was wait. So, then,
1: wait, no, this is the eighty nine percent of the respondents considered Georgia part of the South. Who?
0: Yeah, eleven. Where is the
1: South if it's not in Georgia? Right. Exactly. That's
0: insane. Yeah. Uh, people in South Carolina probably thought Atlanta <laughs> wasn't in the South. Well, that's for sure. You've never yeah. been to Atlanta. It's not the South. Exactly. I. What you know? What would would be interesting? Which I'm not going to do this, but so they have um uh, they they didn't really show us uh do, 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 part of the south what the northerners thought so what what they showed here was 1100 people identifying as some or a lot as a, as a southerner so this is what southerners see as the south
1: okay got it and ha-
0: but self self proclaimed southerner apparently correct yeah but there's another half of this survey that is people from – that identify themselves as from not the South. So I wonder if that looks the same.
1: I'm sure it doesn't. That
0: would be interesting. Let's get Nate yeah. Silver on that.
1: Yeah. Maybe it well, is I, 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 I'm I'm thinking that this is going to – there are going to be a whole bunch of uh, posts about this. So yeah. um, I'm looking forward to wh- what's the Northeast, Mid-Atlantic – um, you know, anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to this continuing series of, of blog posts from the 538 blogs.
0: Did you, um, speaking of regionalism, did you ever do, I don't think we talked about this on the podcast, but did you ever do that? New York times dialect survey. I did. Yeah. And what, did. so where did it put you in New Jersey?
1: It, well, first of all, I have to say, I found it very hard. Okay, mm-hmm. because I spent most of my formative years in upstate New York, which has a different accent than New Jersey, um, and but I've lived most of my recent life in New Jersey, and so it had me equally split between New Jersey and upstate New York.
0: And it did; it put you in the right spot. It, it, yeah, exactly. Totally nailed it. Nice. So, so Canada wasn't involved. Like, wasn't. Um, <laughs> but they, wasn't, but they let they let Canadians take the poll, the, right? Yeah, I took the poll. So, do okay. you guess where where I ended up. I don't know. Seattle. Buffalo? Seattle. Seattle. <laughs> I, and, and I wonder if that's um, because Vancouver and Seattle are more, like, huh. the influence between yeah. Vancouver and Seattle is maybe more than Toronto on Buffalo.
1: Yeah. I, um, well, we, I, you know, we, would, we should repeat that with other Canadians and find out what they, what they, how they scored.
0: Yeah. It wasn't, it was crazy. Like, I, I did it and I was like, ah, I wonder where it's going to put me. And it was, yeah, Dan, Danny also ended up in Seattle. So maybe That's, Canadians are really close. To, maybe huh. Seattle is the Canada of, of the U.S.
1: <laughs> well, we I think we need I think we need Canadians who are not from that part of Canada to take it. So I want to um, know what like what Linda and Michelle would score. You know, let's
0: do it. Homework. All right, homework for us. Let's do it. <laughs> um. So yeah, I, I live in the south, and I, I guess I, I don't even know if I identify. No, I I don't identify. I'm. Hang on. How do they phrase this? identifying as some or a lot as a southerner i do not identify as a southerner but i would vote all of these hot red states as the south and the less hot red states would be would not you're but you're but you're from the southern part of canada as is everybody true (laughs) yeah almost everybody everybody. as in yeah (laughs) i and if um i mean geographically no but uh realistically I'm, i'm from the central part of canada the center of canada in Toronto mm. You agree with that? I'm, I'm pretty the sure you're wrong. Not. <laughs> I'm pretty
1: sure you're wrong. It might be the it might be the the um population center. I'm pretty sure it's not the jigra. Geogra- my Canadian geography is like most Americans, uh, m- most uh US folks um is bad, but I'm pretty sure that it's that's not the center, Ben.
0: Um it's the center. Maybe not geography-wise, but it's the center.
1: <laughs> well, Okay. <laughs>
0: um <laughs> All, all the voting is done uh, <laughs> before it gets any further west of of Toronto.
1: Yeah, it looks like to me, from my uneducated eye, it looks like Winnipeg is the center.
0: Oh well, <laughs> and 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 that's where the, that's where we differ. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey, this has been good. Is there anything else you wanted to uh, chat about before we go? Well,
1: you know, one thing I I do I I want to give us time um, to do an after dark, and you I know you have a hard out. I do want to talk a little bit about this guy Seth Roberts. I don't know if you looked at the at the the, the blog post, um, but this was something that I found out I found from Andrew Gelman's blog, which um, is the 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 statistics. Blog I've been infatuated with recently, um, and and so so Seth Roberts was this this came across my my newsfeed this morning. Um, uh, this is a guy who was a uh, psychologist uh, who 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 basically was kind of a pioneer in this field of personal science, like 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 using yourself as a test subject and and doing science to find out. About lots of different things, like he wrote a best-selling diet book, which apparently is kind of kind of wacky. But uh, uh, you know, just a bunch of he's just a really interesting guy, and he passed away suddenly while out on a walk. Um, and it just I spent you know I, what I was supposed to do this morning was work on uh, writing Michelle's blog post and our blog post support, writing Michelle's uh, uh, edits to Michelle's Grant proposal and prepare for this podcast. And instead, I ended up reading about this guy who I had heard about, and so he he's he popularized this whole idea of you, that people can be scientists and they can go collect data themselves and and do stuff and he's kind of he wasn't afraid to tweak the nose of established experts and and basically use his own research on himself to to prove things and i just in in him i sense a kind of a kindred spirit um like somebody who's who's not afraid to go against convention and who can basically you know is not afraid to um, question uh, uh authority and and he talks about um, why self experimentation is rare among professional scientists right so so uh, if he ta- he talks about this term called um Um, uh, a a series of terms about how uh, people who are wealthy differentiate themselves from people who are not wealthy. And and this is from a guy named uh, Veblen. And we'll we'll, we'll link to uh, uh, his – this guy Seth's uh, article that that, uh, finds all this. So uh, again, I'll read briefly from from his, um, uh, his article. He says Veblen coined the term conspicuous consumption. Um, so one of the things that you do if you're wealthy is you you have a fancy Rolex or a fancy car. Um, another thing that people who are wealthy is they display uselessness. That is, uh, you know, women have long fingernails, men wear ties. Those are, are status symbols because you know you can't uh, if you do manual labor you can't have long nails, right? So uh, and you can't have a tie because it would get caught in the machinery and, and strangle you. So so those are things that wealthy people do. And then the third thing that they do. Is they display refinement. That is, they they have activities that are conspicuous, time consuming, and are of little value. So they, um, you know, they accumulate knowledge of dead languages, or you know, they they critique people's spelling or, um, you know, they play a musical instrument or they're an artist or, you know, again, they, they, they breed, uh, they breed fancy animals like dogs and horses and things like that. And, and Seth's point was that these ideas explain why self-experimentation is rare among scientists, right? So scientists typically we're not wealthy. We don't display great wealth, but we can hope to get a big grant. And with that big grant, we can buy expensive equipment and, uh, because self-experimentation is low cost, it goes against that. Um, Also, um, uh, we, you know, scientists like to do research that is sort of groundbreaking and is, you know... Basically, basic science is valued more than applied science. So, people that kind of do this dilettante, uh, you know, basic science exploration, they have a higher status, right? Um, uh, and so, uh, and, and 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 again, uh, the self-experimentation, anybody can do it. So, it's it's common. Um, it's not it's not something that uh, you know you need specialized equipment to do. And you know that really that that particular article resonated with me because that's not the way that I've. Chosen to do science, right? And in you too, right? We do stuff that is relevant to the real world. We do stuff that can sometimes be done with very simple equipment. Um, and yeah, it's nice to get grants. But you know, honestly, I'm all in favor of finding a way to do research with undergraduate students or that can be done on a very limited budget. So, again, a lot to like about this guy and his approach to doing science. And it's just a shame. Again, he went before his time. He was probably only about sixty years old. And uh, I don't know. It just was. It just kind of uh, captured my attention this morning. Morning, perhaps because I was procrastinating editing Michelle's grant proposal. But um I don't know. It just uh, I just wanted to call it out here on the on the podcast.
0: Well it's good. Thanks for for um uh, including this. And I, I hadn't um I didn't know anything about him uh before and when you when you put this in or the the article uh, this morning then checked out his blog and um Got lost for a little bit while I was watching mm. some student presentations, and it seems like a really, um, you know, going back to how we opened the podcast on sort of the philosophy of uh, uh, of science and and what we're supposed to do in the world of academia. It was it was a good um, it was a really interesting um, reading, um, and, and so and I, you know it
1: it resonated with me because of some of the stuff that we have talked about, like validating mm-hmm. you know dishwasher cooking directions. I mean, that's something that anybody can do, right? I mean, so it doesn't. It doesn't, and again, I think extension people in particular are very sensitive to this. Like realizing that there's actually relevant research you can do that doesn't cost very much money, that will be useful to people, and that's what we ought to be as extension professionals, as, as applied scientists. That's what we ought to be doing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It was it was good. Thanks for for including this. I um, I don't know if you visited his blog and and looked at the comments um, after his sister announced the. Um, the, that he had died but there's a really like the, the one that stuck out to me was from someone named JRM who said I'm deeply saddened to learn of his death and this question is to Amy who's uh, Seth's sister I'd like to know if he died of brain hemorrhage or other sort of hemorrhage, and what his level of omega-3 intake was. Please fill us in on the medical de- details. In October, I e- emailed him this. I left a comment because you underestimated your omega-3 consumption by a factor of 10. The denominator is 10 grams for flaxseed, not 100 grams. And he links to the original message. And so his omega-3 intake was, was what are you was saying was too high. And he responded, Seth responded at that time by saying, thank you for your comment and the additional information from your email. I took your comment very seriously. I've already gone down from six 60 grams a day to 30 grams a day, um, but it's not so obvious uh, um, what to do because if I remember correctly, that 60 uh, grams a day produced better results than 30 grams a day. So, anyways, I, I guess just even in the announcement of his death, there is he, he, Seth had shared so much information that, and in, 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 um, in a you know transparently sort of talking about this um, personal science area that people were. We're, you know, we're asking like, I mean, a somewhat ridiculous question early on, which is, you know, well, what ha- what happened, and is this a? Um yeah, you know, tell tell me about the omega three consumption. Was it brain hemorrhage? Because that might have been uh, something linked to something that he had posted about on his on, on his personal science side.
1: Well, and and I just I just sent you a link through Skype. Uh, Hacker News is already all over this. Like I was trying to find out like how old the guy was because that's of course my immediate reaction anytime anybody dies. Yeah, <clears throat> and this is something Ben, you have to look forward to as you get older. But I was want to know how old the guy was, and I found this Hacker News thread. And you know, Hacker News is all over this. Like people, and again, just, it points to the idiocy of internet culture and people saying, "Oh, um, you know, maybe he died because he had all these wacky diets." And right, right, people, yeah. other people saying, "How dare you say that? Uh, he's just—he's not, you know, that long dead. Too soon, too soon." And you know, anyway, just a, anyway, it's—I uh, think Hacker News is about what is right and wrong with internet culture. Right? There's a lot of people chiming in with useful discussions. There's a lot of people talking about that. Y'all, Yo, you're being a troll. And it's like, you now you're being a jerk. So anyway, um, so we'll link to the uh, Hacker News thread on this as well. Um, again, if you want to lose a couple hours, uh, go ahead
0: yeah. and read, yeah, right. read all that. Oh man, cool. All right. we got yeah, we got to we got to go. Right? We do. We do. Thanks again for uh, including that. That was a good discussion. Absolutely. Um, thanks, Ben. So, as always, thank you to our listeners for making it uh, this far into the podcast. Or if you just started a couple of minutes ago, then, then we're, this is the time to let you know that it's over. And and, and uh, six or seven days from now, uh, either Don or I will add the music that will be underplaying my voice right now. So so, so thanks, thanks, Don, and I'll talk to you later. All right. Bye, Ben. Bye-bye. Cool.
1: Good. All right. So you really got to run though, huh?
0: I do. I mean, yeah. I've got my my lab meetings right now. Um, in well, in five minutes, we have, we have time to schedule stuff. Okay. Oh, it, so it, you don't have it, to actually. No, have, are, it's only your students. It's all my students. They, they can wait a couple minutes. <laughs> See, absolutely. <laughs> um, where, and you're going somewhere, aren't you? Or I am. You? I'm off to
1: Prague, or not Prague. Uh, f- off to Bud- Budapest for IAFP tonight. Uh, no, no. Uh, oh. Later this uh, at the uh, no. I'm 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 just I'm hanging out at home. <clears throat>
0: good, cool. No, I'm we're we're leaving on the weekend. Oh, good, good, good. And then I'm off to CFP next week. Oh, have a good time. I will. I'm I, I, I cleared it all out. I got nothing. It's kind of fun to go to something with no responsibilities to learn. <laughs> and maybe yeah, I'll it, figure. Maybe I'll jump in. I don't know. I have no idea what to do as an alternate. Oh, oh what? Oh, you are an alternate. I'm an alternate on oh, Council week. Oh, Council. very good. So
1: basically I think all that means is that you just have to be in the room in in council 3. Perfect. And just just like you can hang out, you can you can live blog, you can uh you know, you can live tweet CFP. I,
0: I probably will. i may, I may I may do some of that.
1: Yeah. Um and then and then just pay attention in case uh somebody, you know, passes out from the stress, you'll need to jump in.
0: And then I'll and, and throw my weight behind something. The lobbying is already started. It's always it's, I just got need like seriously, just as we were doing the podcast about yeah. hand-washing. Uh, of course. Our apologies for submitting six issues this same year. Oh, <laughs> well, no problem.
1: Uh, Excellent. <laughs> so, you'll enjoy yeah. it.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It'll be good. Cool. Um, okay, well, I better run. Okay. Uh, I will uh, talk to you later.
1: All right, take care, Ben.
0: Bye-bye. You too. Bye.
1: Bye.